The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, media and technology, creatives, entrepreneurs. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Audio as a medium is the one kind of media that you can consume while you're doing something else, while you're running, while you're driving, while you're working, whatever. You can't watch TV while you're driving or while you're running, and you can't read a newspaper, but you can consume audio. And so I think however people want to get it, and we'll see what the numbers are, you know, six months down the road, we'll see how how the podcast is doing and how the broadcast is doing. But I faith that with a good product, people will come. Jeremy Hobson, the longtime radio host who made a national name for himself across NPR and on the Marketplace Morning Report, his new live national show, The Middle with Jeremy Hobson, is getting picked up by hundreds of stations, hiking the stakes on a contrarian bet that there is indeed a future for this century-old medium. What's the plan, young man? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me is Jeremy Hobson, veteran public media host. He had me often on Here and Now, where you hear me weekly. He was at Marketplace Morning Report for years. He covered special events for NPR, and now he's gone off on his own to launch The Middle with Jeremy Hobson, which is going to air on more than 320 public radio stations across the country. Is that right? 370 now, Robin. The number has increased. Yes. Wow. So this is your vision quest. It said the first show is going to be running from, or you know, ran on Urbana, Illinois, on the studios of your partner, Illinois Public Media. This was at the end of September. What's interesting is I read that you started off as a nine-year-old apprentice, like a Billy Bud type, at Illinois Public Media. <laughs> yeah, well, so I was I was in my third or fourth grade class, minding my own business, and this radio producer named Sherry Lynn came into our class and wanted us to write radio plays to be on this show that she had created called Treehouse Radio by kids, for kids. They selected the play that I, and I think one of my classmates had written. We put it on, and then she said, do you want to come in and you know host the show? So I, I hosted some of Treehouse Radio when I was nine years old at Illinois Public Media, and then worked at the station throughout high school on radio documentary projects, also through like a school radio station collaboration, and then worked there during college. And it's really amazing to come back to that station as the broadcast partner for The Middle. Butterfly in the sky, you can go twice as high, right? Am I dating myself with that reference? You'd see the most precocious elementary school kids would be reading books, excerpting and recommending them with LeVar Burton on Reading Rainbow. But that, like this show, is neither here nor there. I will say about the middle, if you want to know what you write, if you want to know what's going on in this country, you almost always have to pick a side. But what if you're in the middle? Maybe you live somewhere between the coast and feel too much media coverage is devoted to the big markets like LA and New York. Or maybe you struggle to identify with the polarized extremes portrayed by increasingly politicized news organizations. Enter the middle with Jeremy Hobson, a new live public radio call-in show and podcast elevating the voices of everyday Americans in the geographic and political middle and bringing them into the national conversation. 
how did this occur to you? I know you parted with Here and Now and Broadly with, with NPR. Was it a, a couple of years ago? Yeah, it was in uh, 2020. It's fall of 2020. Yeah. So what's interesting is your voice and your name and the byline, if you will, can travel. I mean, you had the Hopcast for a while, and that's what a lot of people have become, as you yourself have noted on Substack, is kind of free agent journalists who are not tethered to the big masthead or the huge media organization. There's diminishing returns from that. But you felt this hankering, as I followed your story, to go back to something that we lost, kind of the art of you know inclusive, the, the rush of live public radio, which seems like kind of a, you know, a lot of people would dismiss that as kind of Betamax. You know, I think there are a lot of things here about this show that that appeal to me and gets to what you're talking about. One of them is I love the idea of an evening program. This show is live at 8 p.m. Central Time, 9 p.m. Eastern. When I was growing up in central Illinois, I used to listen to the radio at night. It's where I first fell in love with the medium. I think there's something really great about an evening show. There's something more relaxed about it. You just feel more of a connection, I think, to the host on the other end. And by the way, you know, I hosted Marketplace Morning Report. That was in the morning. I hosted Here and Now. That was in the afternoon. The idea of an evening show appeals to me. The other thing is about live. You know, people may think that live radio is, is the thing of the past. I think live radio is the reason for radio's existence right now because podcasts can be listened to anytime, but there is something really special about hearing something in real time as it's happening, warts and all, with all of its unpredictability and spontaneity. And I think in many ways, public radio has gone too far in the direction of overproducing things and making them sound too precious and not real enough. And we lack the authenticity when we don't have the live element. So I think that that is a really important part of this show. And I, and clearly stations have responded. I do think that, you know, of those 370 stations, there are many that the live element is what appeals to them about it most. I'm really fascinated by this. I also understood kind of as a fledgling NPR adjacent podcast that the stations decidedly pay for all things considered morning edition and maybe fresh air and wait, wait, don't tell me. And that's kind of packaged. And you clearly worked with, what is it, American Public Media and Marketplace. There are other distributors that kind of get other things, but they're largely not in a position right now. Member stations, which have a, a large, uh, an older demography, people who participate through pledge drives, it skews well into the 60s, I imagine, not digital natives by and large. What is your, I don't mean to sound so mercenary, but what is your business model to be so picked up by these stations? In the meantime, do they pay you anything? So at the beginning, after we, so we did four pilot episodes last year, which was really crucial. And I've been working with John Barth, uh, who's a longtime kind of public radio guru, one of the founders of Marketplace, one of the founders of Reveal, of the Moth Radio Hour. So he knows how to get these things done. But what he said to me a year ago, because I wanted to launch a nightly program, and he said, look, cool your jets. How about we do four specials around the election as a proof of concept? Then it's like you don't have to get on all these stations' schedules every single week. You're just saying we're doing four live specials around the election. So that's what we did. And around wow. those specials, we managed to get those specials, and they were free to air on over 500 public radio stations. Then we went about going to try to find the money to turn this into a weekly program. And in all the conversations we had with funders, with foundations, et cetera, the one that ended up coming back in March, after many months of, of talking to people and pitching this idea, was iHeartMedia. 
and they said, we are interested in the podcast. We are very interested in the podcast. Our CEO- Time out. iHeartMedia is the old clear channel, right? Lowry Mays, we're talking, I don't know if Bob, Bob Pittman's Pittman. running the Bob thing right Pittman now, but is the, when, is you the turn on FM, right. when you turn on a medium FN, and I, I don't listen to FM radio. I haven't for years. I want to get into Bluetooth, but- they are there. I mean, they back Molly Jong Fast, Hit Pod. Well, they're the biggest politics. podcast, uh, the biggest podcast distributor in the world. Um, and now that's willful self disruption because their bread and butter is still kind of car dealership advertising on terrestrial radio and and kind of DJs and morning stuff. But that industry has been so disrupted that they've had no choice but to adapt or die to podcasting. Well, and th they came in and said, we love this idea of the of a nonpartisan call-in show where anybody can take part that's focused on the middle. And they said, we, we understand that you have to have a live radio show in order for this podcast to work because you've got to have calls, live calls. And so they said, we looked at for a minute at like, should this go on iHeart radio stations and then be an iHeart podcast? And they're like, no. I think on our talk stations, this wouldn't fit in because a lot of their talk stations are a lot of right-wing conservative talk. So they right. said, we will allow you to put this show out first on public radio live, and then we will distribute the podcast. And so that came a chunk of money that made it possible to get things moving and then go try to find the funding for the show. Now, currently for the first year, we're offering it to public radio stations for free, and then there will be fees after that. And then we're, you know, out looking for grants and other things. But the funding model, I think, over the long term, and I've, I've now had to learn way more about budgets, et cetera, than I would ever want to. The funding model over the long term looks quite strong. There are definitely ways to make this a sustainable and even profitable product. But in the short term, of course, you need the startup capital. Um, the iHeart money is some. We're still on the hunt for grants and other things that will help us get through this first year. But let me let me clarify this. Member stations, the one NPR member stations or yep. low power public radio stations are ones that are again NPR adjacent. They're right now, as I understand, they're in no position to pay for anything new. We've seen NPR's cutbacks of staff, NPR's cutbacks on the podcasting budget. I mean, we have a lot of friends in that network, so I want to be careful what we say. But meanwhile, a bunch of the other podcasting natives. You see Malcolm Gladwell and Pushkin. You've seen um, Gimlet, which was acquired by Spotify. You remember the startup podcast? All of them have been letting people go left and right. I mean, Adam Davidson was involved. What was it with Sony? I mean, there was a parallel to everything we've seen with Netflix and the streaming boom during the pandemic and the era of 0% interest rates. But a lot of that has kind of disappeared in the meantime, so it's become ever harder. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we are trying to create a model that is going to be sustainable. This is a, I've got a team of six, but almost all of them are working part-time, working remotely, and we're trying to keep costs in a reasonable way. I, I will say, you know, Robin, I, you may know, I am the child of a British father and a Jewish mother, and both have a, a reputation for frugality. And thankfully, <laughs> I've, I've gotten, I've inherited that from both sides of my family, and I want to make sure that we are able to do this in a way that's not busting the bank. Jeremy, I got to ask you, you know, the big revelation for me, I went and gave a talk uh, yesterday in D.C. about things like, you know, it's been 25 years since college graduation, and I would have been amazed back then. I had the my first MP3 senior year of college was ever long by Foo Fighters. Mm. And I was still jury rigging the disc man in the car to work with the janky cassette adapter and everything. And if I could talk to my, you know, myself 25 years into the future, I would be blown away by 
one Bluetooth technology, even the the jalopiest car in the world, you could feel like a billionaire in it with seamless Bluetooth. But two, the fact, and you know, I'm getting to this is on our smartphones, you're paying for an unlimited data plan. You absolutely feel like a king on Spotify or iTunes or the NPR One app. I drove a lot yesterday, or if I drive up the coast, I can listen to any podcast, any the most esoteric thing in the world, you know, a podcast about Def Leppard's first two albums. Like it's sliced and diced in a way to step back from all of this. I don't have to care about what's on radio. I don't have to care about the signals changing. Radio doesn't really mean anything to me anymore because I can get everything on demand. And yet you harbor this nostalgia for live evening call-in radio. There's still something to be said about a, a really disrupted, declining medium. Well, first of all, the show is also on a podcast and it wouldn't be on the radio but for the podcast. So there, you know, and there are many stations uh, that are running the show not live, but, you know, on the weekend or, or something like that. Although but I will hold say- on. Technologically, you could still run it live over a stream. I mean, I'm sure there's Twitter spaces technology or Facebook technology for yeah. you to do it. Why must you go through the antenna and terrestrial? I understand your nostalgia for it. I understand the sweet place in your memory for Urbana. No, there's also, there's also millions of people who are listening to NPR stations every single week still. And like the idea that we just forget about all of those people that are still tuning in to public radio stations every single week is crazy. In fact, Robin, 80% of Americans listen to the radio every single week. Let's not forget about that. That may be lost in New York and Washington when where people have moved fully into podcasts because they're getting on the subway or the metro. But like in most of America, you're still getting in your car. You're not hooking up your iPhone and connecting it and setting up the podcast feed. You're just turning on the radio dial and you're flipping through it. And so I think there are still so many people out there that are getting their information, that are listening to the radio for entertainment, whatever it might be, every single week. But isn't that FM radio? This is where I don't understand. They're, you know, Again, you go to your median Ghanaian cabbie in Washington, D.C., which again is not demonstrative of your target demo in this case. There are people listening to Rush Limbaugh and then toggling to WAMU, which I think is the number one or number two station. It's an NPR member station. They're going in and out of AM and FM and NPR radio. I never got the impression that that is the case in middle America, that they're going to NPR for kind of talk content or call content. You're making the bet that they can and they will. Oh, I mean, it's one of the biggest networks in the public media system is Minnesota Public Radio, which has some 40 stations or so across the state. People tune into that constantly. Wisconsin Public Radio, both of these networks are carrying our show, also very, very popular. I think this is one of the things, Robin, is that I think when you live on the coasts, you don't quite understand the way that the rest of the country consumes media and pays attention to politics and all those sorts of things. It's different. It's not the same as it is in Washington, D.C. By the way, you bring up Washington, D.C., WAMU, a great station, one of the most important stations in the entire system of public radio. But if you look at their numbers compared to just about any other major market station in the country, WAMU does better in Washington, D.C. than just about any other public radio station does in its market. It's a very unusual place. Yeah, unusual, yeah. Yes. If yes. you look at the comp numbers and the, I wrote the data scan numbers, I was talking to the former content chief there. I couldn't believe it. But then again, I seem to be anchoring my opinion as kind of in, in the coastal elitism. You've been in Los <laughs> Angeles. You've been in Boston. You've been in D.C. This is a strange world for me. And again, for my listeners, I don't really want to wonk out. You are still dealing with the chief FM 
radio player out there in kind of iHeartMedia, the former Clear Channel, which is also willfully going into podcasts and saying, I am willing to tolerate and actually encourage your ramp up into NPR stations while we run it on podcast in the interest of building clout and building steam for this, whatever, three, four years hence. Yeah. I, look, I think it's a, it's a unique partnership. I hope it works out for everybody involved in it. I think it can. I think if like my job in this is to put on a really good product every week that's going to work on the radio, that's going to work on podcasts, that's going to work where, however people are consuming it. But I think at the end of the day, audio as a medium, whether you're listening to it on live radio or on podcast, is the one kind of media that you can consume while you're doing something else, while you're running, while you're driving, while you're working, whatever. You can't watch TV while you're driving or while you're running, and you can't read a newspaper, but you can consume audio. And so I think however people want to get it, and we'll see what the numbers are, you know, six months down the road, we'll see how how the podcast is doing and how the broadcast is doing. But I faith that with a good product, people will come. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're joined by Jeremy Hobson. You might recognize his voice from NPR's Here and Now. A longtime Marketplace person when I first met you. He's now host and creator of The Middle, which is a program that's airing across, what, 370 stations on topics that are kind of ignored by the coasts. Uh, too much media coverage you write is devoted to big markets like LA and New York. And you are leaning in, as much as I hate that verb, into the middle <laughs> middle section of the United States. Interesting time, as we've seen the Speaker of the House defenestrated by his kind of base. You talk about uh, it's just a rarity of of kind of middle ground media, or a place where we can all meet. You know, I, I think about you know, you, I'm sure you've done it too. You go on C-SPAN on Sunday mornings, and they still dedicate a Republican line, a Democratic right. line, and an Independent line, and it seems like a lost art form. Yeah, but yet if you look out, you know, public radio hasn't had a national call-in talk show that takes live calls in years. Talk of the Nation ended in 2013. On Point doesn't take live calls anymore. 1A doesn't take live calls anymore. So this is going to be basically the only or the largest reach of any show on public radio that takes live calls. But if you look across commercial radio, all the top shows take live calls. This is a model that seems to work in a lot of different places. But, you know, I look, it's definitely, it's nerve wracking <laughs> when, when I, when I don't know what's going to happen when I bring this call on there. Now, like, luckily I have two great call screeners and I have an eight second delay, but you know, you never know what's going to happen. Jeremy, what's your view broadly on kind of the, the business of, of audio? I mean, as we've flicked that earlier, the barriers to entry have never been so low. You compare yourself as an intern in your twenties or the youngest person to a center you know, a nationally broadcast public radio show, I think, was in around 2010. Back in the day, you had to kiss the ring of the member station or pay your dues or actually cut tape. Um, something yeah. happened over the last 10 years where you could buy a USB cardioid mic for next to nothing on Amazon. You can have a MacBook or anything, get into any of these Zencaster things. Even if you don't have a producer on hand, you can upload it to Fiverr or find someone in Estonia to cut it for you and then post it to SoundCloud. And then you're internationally known and, and known to rock a microphone, if you will. <laughs> and that, I always imagine, had to be really terrifying to NPR. We saw what happened with the New York Times integrating into audio, bringing out something like The Daily, forcing the hand of all things considered, forcing NPR, maybe kicking and screaming to get into on-demand audio in a way that they wouldn't have without competition. And moreover, you and I have witnessed the brain drain, some of the best yes. talents in the public media ecosystem kind of getting beamed out and into for-profit uh, startups. Many of them were willing to double salaries. 
Yes. And I think that it's great that the barrier to entry is lower. I think it's amazing that so many young people are interested in creating audio medium. But I also think that a lot of the trouble that has occurred in the podcasting space, especially, has been because of overspending and trying to produce a Netflix. And, and by the way, Netflix has had the same issue. They went and spent a ton of money and now they're having to pull back because they spent too much on all these projects. You still have to live in the world of reality um, where you know you only have so many advertising dollars or investment dollars that are going to come in and support what you're doing. And you cannot go on for years, years and years and years with a product that is a charity product for the company that's putting it together. You know, when Here and Now, when I came to Here and Now in 2013, it had been going on for many years as more of a regional show out of Boston, a one-hour program that was on something like 160 or 180 stations around the country. But it had been losing money for WBUR every single year. After I came in and we partnered with NPR, we turned it into a two-hour program, it started making money in its first year. And it was the first profitable national program that WBUR had ever produced. And that says something like these shows that everybody's taking should be able to be money making shows because (laughs) they cost money to make, but they're providing a service and people should pay for it. Um, You know, I think the idea that journalism should be free to consume, it doesn't make a lot of sense. At the end of the day, public media does allow anybody to take it for free as a consumer. I think there's a nice thing about that because a lot of people couldn't afford to pay for it. The stations still have to afford to pay for it. And people still have to pay the show creators for the product. Right. And there still have to be benefactors. I mean, whether it's the ballet or the symphony orchestra. And this is, does it keep you up at night that these are overwhelmingly older boomers? I mean, when we talk to our cohorts or people, Gen X, Gen Y, younger digital natives, who are not sharing a, a you know a Spotify unlimited account or something like that? It's vexingly hard to ultimately get the end user to pay. I mean, even a Joe Rogan, the king of all podcasting, purportedly, he is dependent on Spotify paying him a major advance, and he wasn't even exclusive on Spotify in the end. These are the things I don't quite understand. NPR had all of these great shows that happened to be available on the NPR One app, but by no means were exclusive. They just say when you go on them that you can get them wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, look, I'm not making Joe Rogan money and I probably never will. <laughs> but, but And by the way, Howard Stern also, you know, is what hundreds of millions of dollars in his contract for his show on Sirius XM. I think, th- though, it gets back to the issue of you just don't want to spend so much money that it's going to be impossible to make it back over the course of time and make sure that it's a sustainable product. Full disclosure, do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including an especially Apple podcast. The link, please subscribe and call your girlfriend, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. A lot of honking live shows coming up at the University of Richmond's Robbins School of Business and the Maudlin Center. On October 25th, we have NPR's Steve Inskeep on his new book about uh, Lincoln's leadership, Differ We Must, uh, Dean's Reception Follows. About a week after that, MSNBC President Rashida Jones returns to Richmond, where she went to high school. I was chatting with her principal at Henrico High School, and they're stoked about that. And then uh, December 1st, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Transportation Secretary, coming to the Maudlin Center. All of these events are free, but you must register and get tickets and seating is limited. You can catch me on all of my socials at Full D Radio, where I will have links to ticketing. 
If you're just joining us, my guest is Jeremy Hobson. The show is The Middle, which is now on more than 360 public radio stations across the country. Jeremy Hobson was former host of NPR's Here and Now, where you could often hear us together, and Marketplace. I mean, that's when I was first introduced to you by, I think, Dan Gretsch back in the day. He said, you're interested in radio, young man? You need to meet this wunderkind, Jeremy Hobson. <laughs> He's got a special passion for this. And we met in the Bloomberg building where I used to do Bloomberg Radio, which was its own world because you'd cover marketplace-type issues, maybe for a more sophisticated investing audience. And it would run in the tri-state area and on other AM stations across the country. But it was by no means a profit center for Bloomberg. It was just you know a sprig of parsley, an extra sprig of parsley on their plate. But I heard that he liked that a lot. Mayor, Mayor Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg actually loved listening to the radio. Yeah, that's the thing. And there's still people who love listening to the radio. Like there's certain shows that I'm doing. The Rush for me, you know, both of us know, I think, Sarah Saracen. Um, yeah. She was with All Things Considered back in the day. And she got in touch with me unsolicited was, I think, 21 years ago. I was a magazine writer in New York. And I get this call from a producer at All Things Considered or a commentary producer saying, your prose would really lend itself to these commentaries. And I was like, really? You're trying to say I have a face for radio? Uh, no. <laughs> She's like, no, go ahead. And I recorded these things and I was hearing, and, and you had this rush as well, I'm sure. I was hearing friends from friends from bar mitzvah classes, teachers I had lost touch with. All things considered back then, I think, was hitting 14 to 16 million drivers every day. It was a whole different rush to be on that versus having a you know even a magazine cover or a byline on top of a on the cover of a major newspaper as i'm sure you've talked about there's something very special about that kind of egalitarian touch of nationwide radio yeah i mean as i was saying i think it's it's really nice that this is the this is a medium that you can consume even if you make no money that you know that the fm signal is just going out and while you and i may not you know use a an old fm radio with an antenna on it there are still a lot of people who do and there are still a lot of people who are just listening to the radio in their car i think that's the other thing we have to remember this is a very car centric culture still and a lot of people just turn on the radio and listen you know if you're turning on the radio and you want to hear talk and you flip through the channels and it's just nothing but five minute commercial breaks. It's nice to flip over and actually hear something live, which is what you maybe wanted in the first place, but that's not filled with commercial breaks. So that's why I think public radio has gone mostly to talk on, on their stations because they see that there's a, there's a hunger for that. Jeremy, tell us, I mean, if you could get into the nitty gritty, especially for kind of an NPR nerd audience. Mm -hmm. How did you handle the negotiations with station managers? I was always under the impression that there's really no room for movement on the schedule. Occasionally shows, you know, recently, what was it? Takeaway disappeared. That was a WNYC, maybe PRX thing. Some stations have opted not to run a rerun of Fresh Air in the evenings to pick up your show. I've always gotten the impression that the schedule is the schedule and you can't really do anything about it. And, you know, maybe car talk goes away, but there isn't room for movement. And I suddenly read that you get 370 stations to pick you up. Yeah, look, I think uh, there's a few things. One, we we did our four pilot specials, and we you know we did get some numbers back from some markets, and they actually did quite well. There was one major market where they saw like a tripling of their audience during the time. Now it's not a large sample; it's only four weeks, but there were markets that really saw some good movement in the evening. I think the fact that w when we were trying to figure out where to put the show. 
one of the things I wanted to make sure was that it could be live in the central and mountain time zone so that we could get that geographic middle calling into the show. And so in order to do that, it really has to be not competing against all things considered. And so we we're like, we've got to get it on after seven o'clock PM in the mountain time zone. So that's where it is. It's at 9 PM Eastern time, eight central, seven mountain, six Pacific. As of right now, there's only one station on the Pacific time zone that I know of that's running us live. There are a number that are running us later in the evening, but Nevada Public Radio is running us at six o'clock PM across the state of Nevada. That's gonna be really interesting to see how that does in Nevada. I think that that would have been either All Things Considered or Marketplace running at that time before. So the evening had to happen. We, we looked at the afternoon on Fridays and it just didn't make sense. We weren't gonna get the critical mass of stations we needed. We looked at the weekend. The weekend is actually, you know, like, oh, the stations would love to have a live show in the middle of the day on the weekend. The problem with the weekend is that you can't really be live across the country unless you are doing it really late in the day because otherwise you're gonna be up against weekend edition and car talk for the stations that still run it. And wait, wait, don't tell me. No station's gonna move those because they're doing great. And so then you're really talking about afternoon Pacific, and then you run up against weekend, all things considered. And it's just, we felt that for the feeling of the show that we wanted, let's keep it with the evening. Let's do it on Thursday night so that if stations want to run it on the weekend, if they can't run it live, they can do that. But honestly, Robin, one of the biggest things we ran up against is stations that have classical music. That's and, what I, the, that's what I night, was always, and they don't want to, there are they so many stations, yeah. especially in the middle. I mean, I moved to Richmond and there was the legacy NPR station member station here would play all things considered classical music through the day. I'm sorry, morning edition, classical music, then all things considered. And then maybe there was like a BBC hour in the evenings, right. but it was always just the bare minimum to be able to say we are an NPR member station. And so how do they, I'm fascinated by this well, well, because here, you as a young guy with a recognized kind of advanced, recent NPR disruptor voice comes in and says, I'm willing to do these pilots. There's not much of an opportunity cost for you to give up this evening space for us. Right. And I can make a sustainable business model out of it. Well, and, and here's the other piece of it. First of all, the idea of the middle, I think saying to the stations, as you said in the beginning, quoting me, if you really want to know what's going on in this country ahead of the election next year, you've got to listen to the people who occupy the political middle, the geographic middle, people who want to meet in the middle to find solutions to the problems that we face. And that's one thing. I think people are attracted to the idea. And number two, I think when you say election, if you can make a case to your audience, we are going to take one hour of classical music off on Thursday nights because we are about to enter an incredibly important election season heading into 2024. And we think it's important to bring these voices to our airwaves once a week. That, I think, is a strong argument that many program directors at public radio stations have made. A couple of questions. Um, you read so much about the fractured kind of balkanization and self-selection in media, people wanting to go to the Newsmaxes, wanting to go straight to the pod Save Americas or, uh, you know, Chapo Trap House. These are hit podcasts that, you know, you could find exactly where you are on the partisan spectrum and just live there and tune out everything else and, you know, splendid isolation as Warren Zevon, the late Warren Zevon once crooned. How do you convince stations and how do you, uh, as a person reaching out, making overtures uh, over social media and, and the other marketing campaigns, convince those per people to come to the public radio fold or come back inside? 
Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a challenge as we go forward. And I think one of the things that is really great is that we have this show will actually combine an iHeart podcast audience with the public radio audience. And iHeart is putting a lot of money into promoting this program on their other podcasts, even on their radio stations. And so hopefully we have a pretty sizable podcast audience that brings in some people that are different than what you would ordinarily get. And then you have the public radio audience. But I also think one of the keys to this show is to be a welcoming place where we say, we're not only going to listen to you if you have one view. We actually want to hear different views. The whole idea of this is a curiosity about what other people think in this country. And so we're welcoming. We want to hear from you. And what we found in our pilot episodes and in our episode last week is that we are hearing from people of different ideology. We have a diversity, not just going after a racial diversity and gender diversity, but also ideological diversity, sure. geographic diversity, age diversity, trying to really get a broad cross-section of the American people. And is there a target demo within this? I still see, you know, in legacy linear TV that they're diminishing returns from saying, well, we came in second overall, but number one in the demo, and the, the numbers are the numbers are small, but there's still bragging rights among that. I mean, in public radio, in terrestrial radio, in this day and age, is there a target demographic? You know, I am not um, at the point yet, thankfully, where I'm actually thinking about that kind of thing. Um, I don't know enough about about that. And I've never had to really think about like, oh, I'm going after the 18 to 34, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like right now, I want to put on a good product. If at some point in the next year, somebody, you know, at iHeart or somebody in public radio comes to me and says, we really were losing out on the blah, blah, blah demo, then I'll start thinking about that. But right now, I just, I, that's not my focus. Full disclosure, do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including an especially Apple podcast. The link, please tell your auntie, call your girlfriend, is fullDradio.com. Again, fullDradio.com. Please subscribe, enthuse, and spread the word. We, of course, have NPR Steve Inskeep coming in for full disclosure live at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business, October 25th. Tickets are free, but we ask that you buy his book on Lincoln and a Divided America. Again, NPR Steve Inskeep at the University of Richmond's Robin School, the evening of October 25th. You can follow it on all my socials at Full D Radio for details. Full disclosure, we're joined by Jeremy Hobson. He's host and creator of the new show, The Middle. You've heard him on the podcast, which was kind of his interim project after he left NPR's Here and Now, where we used to work together. He's a veteran of Marketplace Morning Reports. That's where I first heard your voice and we met in person about 15 years ago. Take me to the topics. No shortage. I mean, you having piloted this and pitched it into another divisive, super polarized election year, where can we find common ground? Because, uh, you know, the left-leaning media also navel-gazes a lot about both sides-ism. You can follow the New York Times pitch bot <laughs> as a parody on Twitter, the way right. the subway system is springing leaks <laughs> after years of global warming denial. Here's why that can only help Donald Trump. You know, those kind of, you know, the most harebrained schemes of showing up at the diner in the Midwest, the requisite Let's talk to these disaffected workers about how messed up the country is with a weird sample size. It seems so tortured when the incumbent national press does make that effort. So how are you being self-aware enough and mindful enough to keep this more authentic than just kind of performative self, both sidesism? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think one of the things we wanted to do from the very beginning is to try to put a little more of it back in the hands of the listener and the caller. and. 
by that, I mean in our first pilot episode last year, the topic was what is the most important issue to you heading into the 2022 midterm election? So we're not saying it's this, it's that. We're saying, what is it to you? And we had a lot of people calling with a lot of different things, um, whether it be you know abortion or democracy or inflation or whatever it might have been last year. The start of this season last week we did a great table setting episode. The idea came from our senior producer, Joanne Elgar Jennings, who said, why don't we start off just to set the table for the show with the question, in a divided country, how do you talk to people you disagree with? Which is such a big part of, I think, what's going on right now. And it was such a fascinating show to hear listeners talk about, you know, their struggles with talking to people they disagree with politically and how they got through it. And then, you know, this coming week, we're doing how inflation and higher interest rates are affecting your personal economy. The week after that, we're going to get to the question that we keep reading about in the big newspapers. But I actually would love to hear what a person in Nebraska thinks about it or a person in Texas or, or Indiana thinks about it, which is the age of our politicians, not just Biden, but Trump, but, you know, McConnell, um, Pelosi. Chuck uh, Grassley. Th- <laughs> Chuck Grassley. Chuck your, Grassley. In your territory. I mean, yeah. The late Diane Feinstein, you know, the people are talking about it, and I would have loved to have a conversation about that. And then I think we're going to get to the the issue of what role do you think the U.S. should be playing in the war in Ukraine, which I'd love to hear from people in the middle about. Um, so it's just kind of like we're we're accumulating topics and trying to set them up. It's also a live show, so we may change if there's something that's really important that we get to. There was a little conversation about the House Speaker stuff this week, but I don't think that that's. I think that's still a little, maybe too inside baseball um, for this show at this moment. I think the inflation issues, you know, there's trouble in the house, but there's also trouble in your house when it comes to your mortgage rate. So if we could go to that instead. I got to ask you as a, you know, public transportation and Amtrak wonk, I've loved your body of work on Amtrak and other things that you think would bring Americans together. After all, the, you know, the Frankensteinian way Amtrak has been kept together over 50 years has included a lot of powerful Congress people from stations and lines that are barely used. But you do increasingly hear about people coveting this idea of kind of Milwaukee to Chicago lines. You hear about- St. Clean, Louis, right? You know, St. Louis. You hear about clean tech, which is something else we discussed, being something that can bring people together. Even if you're an oil wildcatter in Texas, yeah. or if you're, you're in Oklahoma, you could get religion if it's profitable and there's subsidies involved. Yes. Tell me about other kind of stones you're turning around in well, these worlds and let me, finding. Let me say about that, because we talked about this as we were putting together the middle- The moment that this country switches fully over to renewables is going to be when people in Ohio decide that it makes more economic sense for them to have solar panels on their roof and an electric vehicle. It's not going to be when people in Berkeley do it. It's the middle that ends up making that switch go. It's just like what we saw with the abortion vote in the state of Kansas last year. If a vote like that had happened in New York State, wouldn't have meant the same thing that it did when it happens in red Kansas, because it shows you what is happening for ordinary Americans that are far away from the bubble of Washington and New York. And I think, you know, I have solar panels on my house and they created a hundred percent of the energy in the house last year. It makes me so happy. But part of the reason that we did it is because it made financial sense. It was cheaper on day one to put those solar panels in with a, you know, 1% 20-year interest loan on the panels, and it it just made sense on day one. The transit issue, I absolutely want to get to on this program. And by the way, we just saw that 
Brightline in the state of Florida just opened its quote high speed train from Miami to Orlando. I say quote because it's not as fast as the one. Well, you know, like, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a Miami I'm a Miami kid, and the, the nickname yeah. there because of its high fatality rate is the crazy train. Just so you know. Oh really? Okay. Well, but but I will say that South Florida, as you know, it has grown so fast, and the traffic is a disaster. And at some point, there's going to have to be a, a real movement over to transit because there's no way to get that many people around from place to place in their cars. So I think that it's kind of amazing. Of course, you don't see Ron DeSantis out there having a press conference about the Brightline train because it doesn't necessarily match up with his politics. But like, that's pretty impressive that in a state like Florida, they just completed that faster than they've been able to do LA to Vegas, faster than they've been able to do Chicago to St. Louis, faster than they've been able to do Dallas to Houston. Well, are you as fascinated as I am with kind of outlier statewide leaders? You know, John Tester in Montana, right? The Democrat in a deep vermilion red state. Uh, Andy Bashir, governor of Kentucky. Are you? Yeah. Are you, you know, you have to. There has to be a part of you that kind of says these are really great tentpole people to talk to because they're governing. They get elected in places like this. I read somewhere that. I think, you know, in the 2008 election, the Dakotas, three out of the four U.S. senators were Democrats. Does that even seem possible to you? Well, and Laura Kelly in the state of Kansas, who just won re-election there last year. I think, yeah, because, because most people, if you look at it, are actually in the broad middle. Look, you just saw that the House Speaker was ousted because a handful of members in his party didn't think he was far right enough for them. And- in fact, if 218 people in the middle across Republicans and Democrats had decided they wanted somebody in, it'd be easy to get them in there. But they just have to be on their teams and they can't they can't cross the line in the center. But the fact is, most people in this country are not out on the fringes. They're in the broad middle. And if we could just like figure out how to work with the people across this artificial divide between the two parties and say, you know what, somebody that's that's, you know, right over the edge on the Republican side and right over the edge of the Democratic side are actually pretty close to each other politically. Well, moderate lawmakers always take us off the record, you and I, and say that, look, I, I would, I'm terrified of getting primaried. There was a terrible choice that I think McCarthy had to make in this case. Do I want to lose the House next year or do I want to lose my base? And it's it's increasingly, right. it's never been this zero sum. I mean, even there was some comment, I think back to Pat Buchanan in 1996. Can you imagine that Pat Buchanan was the fringe and the way the fringe moved over the long run? I think this is why you see so many people in the mainstream media, whatever that means, kind of in this sense, saying that you can't hope for any sort of rapprochement or reconciliation because we are so polarized. And the only thing that's really up for grabs is just a kind of a, a sliver of purported swing voters. But here's the thing. I can see why politicians, you bring up primaries, have an incentive to go to the polar extremes. But the media should not have that incentive. That's the thing that's upsetting. It's like the media actually should not be doing what the politicians are doing and saying, okay, we're only going to cater to these people. We're going to only give them what they want to hear. And you're going to cater over there to those people. I think public media actually has a huge role to play in being a nonpartisan place where everybody of any ideology is welcome to get their news and know that they can trust it. And I think that there's definitely been a pull over the last few years in the world of public media to the left and I think in my 25 plus years in public media, I've always thought that what we were trying to do was create something that had credibility across the political spectrum. 
And I still believe that. And I that's one of the things I want to do here is let's go after the voices of the middle politically and geographically. And maybe that will just bring something to the table that should be there, but hasn't been as much as it should. And I imagine it's such an unenviable task because these so many, so many towns have been bombed out of local news coverage. You think about the Gannettes and the former Knight Ritters of the world, and now the McClatchies and the ones that are hedge fund backed. You talk about the coast, increasingly it's a have lots and have nothing. The New York Times got its act together. Washington Post and Wall Street Journal and Los Angeles Times were acquired and backstopped by billionaires, as was the Boston Globe. And it seems like everyone else in the middle has just atrophied or disappeared. And and there is the NPR member station, if it's not playing classical music for most of the day. So that is kind of scary. You're going into the kind of a a famished local news environment. Yes. And that is a real shame. And I I hope that, you know, they're able to figure that out. And you you mentioned the New York Times. They're profitable now, which is great. But there need to be local newspapers or at least local news organizations that can cover what's going on. I do still think people want to know what's going on in the world and want to know what's going on in their world around them. I mean, local television is still doing better than some other local news organizations. So it's it's a question of like, who's going to figure out what the business model is? But yeah, the local papers are very important. I was just back in my hometown in Urbana, Illinois. They did a story on me in the local newspaper, launching the middle from there. And um, it was a much, 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 much thinner newspaper than it was when I was growing up. I mean, you remember when Warren Buffett, there were these brief hopes, I think in 2012, 2013, that he said, church picnics are not going to end. They're going to advertise in the local paper. And he went in and promptly spit out that acquisition of, I don't remember the publications. It's bleak. And I don't mean to be so pearl clutchy and navel gazy about it. That's why you kind of stand out as a contrarian in this, is that you're going there, you're cobbling together the momentum, the interesting parties, like bringing a Bob Pittman together, bringing a, uh, is it Mr. Barth from PRX? That Did I remember that yeah. correctly? I mean, veterans of Marketplace and the other, this is kind of like a Graham Rudman type coalition to save service journalism over the radio. Yeah, look, I mean, I I don't want to like, you know, say what we're doing is like we're going to change the world. But I do think that there is an important place in this country for these voices. And I, I want to just provide a forum that is, you know, welcoming, that is going to bring voices that are important, but that's also fun to listen to. And, you know, that's by the way, we haven't talked about one other aspect of the show, Robin, which is that I have a I have a DJ sidekick, like a late night talk show, an amazing DJ Tolliver, who is with me in every show playing music into the breaks, being a part of the program. He was born and raised on the south side of Chicago, a funk musician. He calls himself the first funk musician journalist, and he's just fantastic. But it it adds a a level of fun and a nice vibe to the show because I do want it to be a place where people feel like I want to spend my Thursday evenings with the middle. You were you're not interested in two for Tuesday or triple shot Thursday Led Zeppelin or anything stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> I didn't even look. I didn't even get to Sirius XM and satellite radio. I don't. Does anybody still have satellite receivers in their car? Or are they getting that over app and Bluetoothing it? I have Sirius XM in my car, and I I flip around actually quite a bit, but I I do weirdly come back to the eighties on eight. Love the eighties on eight. You know, I always wanted to go on my shows. Like, Classic rock, Robin Farzad, yeah. get the let out, ju 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 ju. You know, but close us out, Jeremy. I mean, there's so much that you and I talk about offline. I've always been a fanboy, and kind of you doing this and wading into it. 
the patience that you've had in marketplace, the way you go off and do a body of work, the way you used to pitch in and show up on, you know, I don't know, Supreme Court confirmation stuff for NPR. You would just parachute in. There was a certain fearlessness to what you're doing. I want to get a sense for milestones and where in your aspirations you want this show to be in N years. Look, what I would like to have happen, um, and you know, I, I'm trying to figure out what the timeline needs to be, but I want this show to be financially sustainable in a year. In one year from now, I would like to know that we're bringing in a, enough money to do the show that we want to do, to get out on the road a lot with the team, and that we're actually having impact in terms of the conversation in the country. That's sort of where I'm thinking right now. You know, I'm still dealing, just before I got on with you, I'm dealing with issues with the phone system because it was overloaded last week and we're trying to figure out how to increase yeah, talk the number of lines. I, was, I, I didn't want to say anything, but you're trying to do phone switching and connecting. You're, you're very much kind of yeah. in a, we're all connected New York telephone 1990 vintage, and yet this is 2023. <laughs> No, right. Look, I mean, I I bought an eight four four number, eight four 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 middle, and and it, and it's it's uh it, it gets forwarded into a phone system in Illinois for the show, and one of the issues is when like twenty people call at once during the show, we're not getting enough of those lines through, and then they're ending up going into voicemail, and then we come out of the show, and there's a hundred voicemails sitting in there, and it's like, wait, I wish more of these calls had gotten through to our screeners. And so we were trying to figure out what the issue was. And I think we actually just did it this morning. But that's the kind of thing that I am looking forward to not thinking about because it's not my expertise. <laughs> but, you know, Robin, I will say in doing this program, one of the things that I have learned is how to run a small business and how hard <laughs> it is. I have I have to deal with equipment and supplies. I've got to hire people. I've got to deal with the budget and I've got to deal with, you know, accounting and insurance and all these kinds of things that small business owners know very well about. I didn't know about that, you know, from a firsthand experience and it's hard. And that's one of the other things we're doing here, but you know, hopefully over the course of time I will have to think about those things less and can just think about the show. Jeremy Hobson, veteran NPR and marketplace personality, is now host and creator of The Middle, which is on nearly 400 public radio stations across the country and is going to be podcast distributed by iHeartMedia. Sir, you got to give us your uh, particulars and handles, and, and don't forget the telex number. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to. Yeah. I had to. Go ahead. Yeah, no, well, our, our website is listentothemiddle.com, where we have all the links to our social media, but it's usually at The Middle Radio. And then uh, mine is at Jeremy Hobson. But Robin, it's been amazing talking to you. Nice to have the tables turned in our conversations and have you on the questioning side and me on the answering side. Yeah, yeah um, like I but, said, it's uh, like that Spider-Man meme when they're all pointing at one another. Like, oh, you, 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 you. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Hobson, please, please, sir, uh, do come back on. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly. Again, if you are listening to us on the radio, note that while we often cut for broadcast link, the entirety of every interview is available on podcast. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. We are on all fine podcatchers everywhere. Follow along on all the socials at handle Full D Radio, where you will find details on huge live events at the University of Richmond, including NPR's Steve Inskeep on October 25th. About a week after that will be MSNBC President Rashida Jones. And in December, at the University of Richmond's Maudlin Center, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Tickets, very limited, are free, so you've got to check us out. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station Radio IQ down in North Carolina on WPBM and out in California on KPPQ. 
message me if you'd like to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs, as I like to say, are always open. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.